When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get started. So first off, do you want me to introduce you as Mr. Zen or how do we how do we want to? Yeah, that's that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, I'm known by many names to different people. So uh, <laughs> Zen and Zen mode had originally uh, been a name that came about through a trading community that I was involved in through TradingView. Okay. And that name has really stuck. And so I've kept that uh, for quite a while. Um, but yeah, I have a, I have a, quite a lot of names from different people that know me. So some call me Joseph and some call me Scott as well. <laughs> How did Joseph and Scott go together? That doesn't... Yeah. So um, the employment that I have, uh, I work for a logistics management company, Trans Logistics, okay. and my father works there as well. And so my first name's Scott, and it's his as well. So when people would call in, they would call me uh, Joseph to tell us apart. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I'm not big on introductions. Um, I usually get straight to the point, but I do want to introduce you. So I'll just tell everybody listening that I have been following you for probably a year and a half or so now. Um, and like everybody I bring on, I think that your your work is super interesting. You do a phenomenal job of taking some very arcane things and making them accessible to, to people um, in both the way that's that's simplified enough for a beginner to get their head around, but also without watering it down so much that somebody a little bit more advanced wouldn't still benefit from it. Very impressive. So I love the way that your brain works. That's why you're on here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to to come out here and speak with us. Why don't you go ahead and just kind of tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you got into to everything, the philosophy, the esoteric, the spiritual, all that good stuff, and kind of what it's done for you a little bit. Yeah. And by the way, Jack, thank you for inviting me. I likewise have listened to your uh, uh, podcast as well, and I enjoy it. So I'm a subscriber to you on Spotify. Thank so, you. Uh, <laughs> thumbs up to you on uh, making a very... Uh, incredible content. Um, I heard on your podcast, you mentioned something that I thought was very wise, which was that there is a lot of garbage out there as far as media is concerned. And yeah. so when you find those gems, it's very, very precious. So I'll continue coming back. And I appreciate the content that you're putting out there as well. It's a, a oasis in a, um, in a lot of really, um, uh, kind of waste of time type content that we get nowadays. But yeah, my journey has been very, um, very windy, I would say. So when I was very young, my parents, very, very sincere, uh, brought me up in a Christian environment. So that was the foundation of my worldview initially. And as I got older, I really had a big introduction to the exoteric interpretations, the very mainstream interpretations. And I found things that I thought were rather incompatible. And it put me down kind of a road where I became an atheist for quite a long time. And I had read all the prominent philosophers and atheists in my youth, um, Hitchens, Dawkins, Sam Harris, uh, lots of big names, lots of incredibly brilliant people. And I had a lot of respect for them. So I wasn't like a militant atheist, though, because my interpretations of the church 
weren't ones that were really negative at all. I actually admired a lot of the leadership because they were giving to the community. They were ministering to people that were poor or that had loved ones pass away or were sick. And I would even do trips with the, the pastor's son, and he would minister to these people who were truly suffering. Uh, it might be some type of domestic incident of children suffering or um, a woman that's riddled with cancer. And so this takes a lot of energy out of you. And they were continually delivering um, empathy to these people. And, and they really did have sincere hearts. However, when it came to the ideology, I was I, I did have major doubts as far as the exoteric, not esoteric, but exoteric interpretations. So I was an atheist, but like I said, I wasn't militant about it. And that was me, frankly, for many, many years as being an atheist. And I decided to, during COVID, frankly, read through all of the scriptures of every belief system. I had been highly influenced by the existential school of philosophy, uh, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and I loved that message because when I went down the road of atheism, it was very hard at first to find meaning because there's so much suffering in the world. Yeah. And so um, Sartre had said a comment, which was that essentially existence precedes essence. Um, and uh, this really was interesting to me as normally essence had preceded existence in my original worldview. And so the conclusion I had to that was that I had to create my own meaning. I had to be captain of my own ship. And when I say that expression, it, it's almost a, a good analogy would be just even a pen, like the essence, the utility and demand for the pen normally exists before the actual pen itself is made. Like an engineer is going to sit there and spec it out and make it. And they're going to get quotes for it and all before it actually exists. When it comes to people in that old worldview I had, we're different. We typically are just thrown with hubris into this world, and then we have to navigate through it in the midst of a lot of suffering. So it can be very dark. It's a dark worldview. And so existentialism, Kierkegaard, they all really helped me a lot. Um, and then, uh, but regardless of all that, I started to read um, the Four Holy Vitas, the uh, Egyptian cosmology, the uh, Norse mythology, all of these different belief systems. And from my time in technical analysis, I started to find patterns. And it was through reading Carl Jung. Uh, I can't even tell you the specific quote from Carl Jung, but it shook me uh, to the core and it, it threw my entire worldview around. And so after reading Jung and to even understand Jung, I was forced to read about Gnosticism and um, a lot of these other uh, mythologies as well. And I then had an experience, and I'm not saying I'm a prophet or I'm special or I'm different. I'm not a, a yogi or anything. Yes. I'm, I'm a humble, normal person who doesn't know anything. Um, but the, the conclusion I had after my mystic experience was that I don't know anything. That was actually the big groundbreaking experience. It humbled me. And I realized that my idea of philosophy with atheism, all that was wrong, but I don't have the answers. And I certainly am not saying one belief system trumps others. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm rambling here, but the final comment I'll make is I really walked away thinking that 
the numinous, as Jung would call divinity, or whatever we might use to label God, uh, to me is like a diamond. And when I read all these literatures, I felt like every civilization and culture spoke in the voice of their time. So it was crude because it's humans are the conduit, but they all saw a different facet of the diamond. And the patterns that I was able to pick out from these different cultures through literature has been deeply, deeply meaningful, along with my subjective experience that really did change me. And it, it actually had happened over the course of two days. And it happened actually while I was reading the Quran. And I'm not Islamic. I, I don't know anything about um, Islam, frankly. Now, since then, I've read a couple of books on the Sufi ideology, but at the time, I knew nothing. And um, it, it was really quite fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the the core essence of the Gnostic pursuit is to have, you know, the Gnosis is that experience of direct communion with the divine. Um, you know, Paul on the way to Damascus was a, a quintessential kind of example of that. Like he wasn't expecting it. Um, he wasn't looking for it either, but it, you know, knocked him off his horse and blinded him for days, but it was life-changing for him. And um, a lot of a lot of Gnosticism is is directed towards finding a similar experience you know not the exact same thing but just that that personal relationship and it, it gets confusing though because they look at it in a more um a, a broad they have a broader approach to things they have a more of a um a more what's the word like a, a kind of analytical so it's like hey there's all these different scriptures out there just because what we have in the bible is what we look at doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end all be all because there's other texts that people were using that the upside to that is that there's a lot of information that's not in the bible that is useful the downside is that we don't really know what's what and so there's a lot of stuff kind of jumbled together that some of it may be true some of it may not be some of it may be useful some of it's downright confusing and so and a lot of it wasn't really written for um the lay people to read it's it's very mystical it's very symbolic it's very like kind of archaic it's like it's it's deep deep layers of, of metaphors and it's confusing for people and that's kind of what i shared before we got on here is what i went through is that getting into all of that shook me up a lot and i kind of had a similar experience to what you did where that pulled me away from faith for a while and um i, I got back to something that you know my own journey where i'm at but it was definitely that period of like i don't know what to make of this but I didn't find that Nietzsche helped me personally. I think he kind of made it worse. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I think he was a catalyst for bringing me into a, I don't want to say a lower point, um, but he was a catalyst. It, it, frankly, the way I wrap it up really briefly as far as Nietzsche is concerned is what Dr. Edinger said. Dr. Edinger said that reading Nietzsche can make you sick. He said that in a lecture at, at Yale. And I found that really humorous because it really did do that to me in a way. And I love Nietzsche. I think he's brilliant. Like uh, uh, probably one of the most smartest men that has ever walked this this earth. He, I'm a dwarf compared to his intellectual. He's an intellectual giant, and I have nothing but respect for him. However, it it really is kind of sick. He talks about inflation, and it it did bring about me going through a, a depression, really. And Kierkegaard and a couple of the other existentialists helped pull me out of that, Camus, uh, really by creating meaning, as I had said earlier. But when it came down to that mystical experience that I went through, 
Um, yeah, meaning to me has changed substantially since then. I don't have the answers, of course, to that. And Gnosticism, as you mentioned as well, splinters into many denominations as well. The Valentinian interpretations are different than the Ophites, for example. It's it's they've got just as many denominations as every everybody else, it seems like. But and it's it's a rabbit hole to pursue them all. Um, and I do like one concept Nietzsche had said, which is it's possible to hold two opposing thoughts at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I think that's really important, especially nowadays with how tribal politics can get, for example, it's, yeah. I can be very empathetic to both sides of a, of a problem, if you will, um, because the real problem is what is, is, is what's frustrating to people, the scarcity of things. But with all that said, um, yeah, that's neat. So you went through a very similar experience, it sounds like. Yeah, kind of. And I mean, I would definitely agree with you. The The big thing at the bottom of all of that is trying to figure out what, what the meaning is. Like, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? And that's that's not something that anybody can definitively answer 100%. Um, but but for you, what, what did that look like when you started to kind of get a better handle on things? Well, I'll tell you, when initially when it started, um, prior to the mystical experience of creating meaning, I was, in a sense, a destiny maker. There's that saying, and it, you see it on tattoos, and nowadays it's become quite popular, Amor Fati, love your fate. Mm -hmm. And I do love that concept because your fate is your life. At the end of the day, um, whether someone believes in fate or not, it is their life. It's frankly synonymous. So you could as easily say, love your life. And I do think like, no matter what, you're going to be hopefully alive. And so while you're alive, you might as well enjoy it. And so with that concept, I really was able to sit back and say, okay, if I was going to draw a painting of what I think is the idealized ver variant of myself, and I'm really not anywhere near the idealized variant, what can I do to become that idealized person? And with that, comes a lot of things I need to shape up about myself and improve the way I interact with other people, the way I manage my emotions. If, am I wasting time just scrolling like a zombie through social media? Or could I pick up a book right now and, and, you know, learn something? Can I be more patient with my loved ones? Can I be more thankful for my loved ones? My orientation for my career, I, hey, I'm already doing this job. I might as well do the best job I can since I'm already sitting here doing the time. And so it, it really shaped me into defining for myself, in, in which also has changed, of course, over the time, but this idealized version of myself that I can keep aiming towards as I started to piece my life uh, together. Now, I will say in the mystical experience, and I've never described this in any uh, conversation before, so um, I will share it with you to the best of my recollection. A couple of my takeaways from that, and the one certainly had a lot to do with meaning, was number one, I didn't, I never realized how afraid of death I was. Mm -hmm. uh, there's that expression that, like Lex Fridman has talked about on his podcast, about it being the worm at the core of the apple, which I, I cherish because the apple analogy from Adam and Eve to me is really them biting into consciousness. It's them becoming self-aware, self-aware of their mortality. So that worm at the core of the apple is, is such a beautiful analogy. And I realized when I went through that experience, like I was petrified of death and I never even had the self-awareness of how afraid of death I was. And that was shocking. 
and the conclusion that came about and I don't want to sound like a lunatic by saying like a discarnate entity or some type of communication that I got and what it was that communicated it to me. Part of it in the moment felt like it was me being getting a message from my post-mortem self, as insane as that sounds. Um, uh, my I had never even heard of the idea of a holy guardian angel at that point. Um, which could be another interpretation that the mystics might describe it as. But nonetheless, um, I suddenly had an insane amount of flashbacks of my life. And the flashbacks were like, hey, I had your back here. I had your back here. I had your back here. And I realized there was all these little things that had paved my way into this just absolutely wonderful life that I live. And I wasn't even self-aware of how blessed I was. And it was really like, hey, you don't need to be afraid of death. Like it's inevitable. Like just, and, and it's not to say you need to, there's that saying like memento mori and all that as well. But it's not to say I need to sit there and meditate on death all the time because it is a rather unpleasant conversation. But the fear of it um, could be channeled. Uh, it, it's almost no different than anxiety. I realized as well, I was really suffering from anxiety about death. And Kierkegaard has this beautiful, I think it's Kierkegaard expression, which he says that anxiety is really no different physiology-wise to you waking up as in Christmas morning as a child, when you're all excited, your palms are sweaty, you're running downstairs, um, your heart's beating, and you're like, what the heck is in this present? The anxiety is just a, a very horrible way of um, having the same like reaction to your body where you can channel it into energy. It's like, because that is energy. And so it's, it's me doing that with death in a sense of me being able to really embrace the fact that I have something precious to live for right now. And that meaning, by the way, to get back to your underlying point, really is about creating and reaching for the ideal while I'm here in this time, while also not being afraid of that postmortem experience that we're going to go through. I love that. I think that's that's a very, very insightful um, look look into the the closest that we can get to a true meaning to try to strive towards the highest good and potential that we have, or the the highest archetype that we you know contain within us. That that's a very I like that a lot. Yeah, and to, to kind of kind of play off of the 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 stoic viewpoint as well. Um, when he's taught, when Marcus Aurelius is talking about meditating on death, I don't personally agree with that either because I think that anything that you focus on too much, you're going to start to manifest in some way, shape, or form. So if you're always thinking about your death, you're going. They did a study a, a while back where they had people answer like a questionnaire on old age, and they basically primed them to think about old age, and they measured how fast they walked when they left the room, the people that had done the old age priming versus the, the um, control group, they walked a lot slower. So they were acting older just by thinking about old age for a couple minutes. So I, I caution against meditating too much on things like that, but you're absolutely right. Like any, the fear of death, the persistent fear of death is death in itself because you're, you're chained up. You're not able to fully experience life because you've got your heart closed off a little bit. And that, that's, that keeps you from really connecting with people. It keeps those walls up, which to go back to the, the Garden of Eden uh, metaphor that you used, I mean, I've always said that the, the, the eating of the apple, I, I'm not too sure about, but in terms of like the, 
being kicked out of paradise, the separation from God, that was because, like you said, you know, they, they became self-conscious. And it was that taking attention off of the higher, putting it onto the human, and being shameful, being afraid, hiding from God, covering themselves up. You know, those are all, you know, whether they're literal or just metaphors, essentially what they're saying is that, like, when you take your attention and put it on the stuff, on the physical things, on the material you can't focus on the higher stuff. So if you're focused on the fear, if you're focused on the shame, on the anger, on the lust, on the greed, on the pride, whatever it is, you can't focus, you're, you're taking all that energy away. You're putting up those barriers and that's keeping you from striving towards your, the, the good that you could become. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's then holding you back. That's beautiful and well said. And I, I would say too, even the point, whether it's literal or a metaphor, as far as the Garden of Eden, to me, both are just as meaningful. Like mm -hmm. I actually don't even, when I read any type of mythology or any book at all, I just can suspend my disbelief, if, if you know what I mean, to try to immerse myself in it, whatever the worldview is or the mythology, um, or if it is literal, um, then I, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me because it's just as meaningful, it's just as literal to me. But I, I will say to the earlier point briefly, you know, when it also comes to meaning, a lot of meaning has to do with values, of course, and what am I valuing, and even the character attributes of what, what, how do I want to conduct my life. And that was another huge conclusion that I came to that I realized I was kind of wrong about, which was, first off, Nietzsche said, of course, we can create our values, and we have to create our values. Young, Carl Jung said, that's wrong. He said, uh, you discover your values. And that actually was an experience I went through. And, and the reason I say that is when I had my experience, another awareness that I had was how horrible my values really were. And um, there was a lot of things about myself that I didn't realize how ugly and toxic they were. Things I'm still working on, by the way. I'm not holier than now or anything like that. It's me humbly saying, I, I realize that I'm a crummy person in a lot of ways. I got to get this addressed and improve. And so my point of saying that, though, is the young interpretation I prefer because it was me discovering my actual character by realizing my shortcomings and actions that then I did change. Like I actually did have the expression, the experience of discovering my values, because if if my old the, the way I act, of course, is truly going to be my value system, I could say, you know, I'm perfect. But if I'm not acting perfect, obviously, my actions are going to trump what I think or what I say. But in that moment, prior to even having the opportunity of changing actions, I at least had the self-awareness that how I was living wasn't congruent with with my identity, with how I wanted to live. So um, values as well is a huge, huge change that is a bit dynamic. I never also realized how dynamic values can be, but also I've had a child since then, and the child has changed my value systems as well. That child is so precious to me. Yeah, I would sacrifice awesome. anything for this child. And so, and of course, I've heard people say this, it's not a, anything revolutionary by my comment, but it was revolutionary to my it's subjective experience in life. This little child just pops out of nowhere and suddenly take, trumps everything that's meaningful in my life. It's it's pretty wild, and it just rocks my world. So 
Um, yeah, that was another thing as well that as far as the meaning piece of this all, um, that was incredibly meaningful to me. That's awesome. Well, yeah, congratulations on that. Kids are, you know, I don't, I don't have any yet, but yeah, that, that's one of those major things that's going to shift your perspective for sure. And yeah, that's what I would say too, is, you know, <clears throat> when you talk about discovering your values, that can be, it's really painful because when, <laughs> It's really painful to to look at yourself in the mirror and to start to see the negative stuff. And I, I believe that Jung was kind of big on the fact that the shadow was the first archetype that you have to confront, because if you don't have that out of the way, and it's a cyclical thing, it's not like you have to do it all at once, but you have to confront that because until you you recognize that you're that there is an illusion there, that there is something blocking you and deceiving you. You can't see yourself objectively, and you never can, but you really can't when you're looking at yourself through the shadow, through the ego, and it's covering up because your brain's constantly lying to you. You're lying to yourself. You're hiding stuff from yourself, and then, um, you know, one of the things that happened to me recently is I, I lost a bunch of stuff. Like, I really went through a difficult winter, and I think most people did, but I, I was in a position where I had to let go of, or was, was ripped away from all the things that I thought really mattered the most. And I got horribly depressed for about two months. And I mm -hmm. thought, this isn't fair. This sucks. This is awful. However, out of that, what I realized was that every single morning when I got up, it's like, okay, well, there's still three or four things that I still care about. I'm going to go do those things. And at some point it clicked. Those are the things that really matter. Like, mm -hmm. even after I lose everything, I still want this. I still want that. I'm still willing to do this, even in the suffering. The podcast is one of those things. I was like, oh, you know what? Like, this is what matters. It's not the money I was chasing. It's not the status I was chasing. It's not all that stuff. It's these couple of things. These are my values. And so that process of, of getting there can be very painful, but it, it's also very necessary. And then just one more thing to add into that too. I've been thinking a lot about karma and about like what that means in a literal sense, you know, like beyond like an esoteric interpretation. So people kind of throw that word around. And I've been thinking about how we don't get away with anything. So we'll we'll do something wrong, we'll we'll avoid something, we'll lie to ourselves, we'll say, oh, that doesn't matter. We can justify it. I had a reason for doing it, et cetera, et cetera. And then after years and years and years of doing this, we start on the spiritual path. We start to try to break through all this stuff. And it all hits us at once. We're like, oh my God, this is unfair. Like universe is punishing me. This is like it's out to get me. And it's like, no, this is the result of your actions. It's just that you have not been aware of them for years because you've been doing it unconsciously. And mm -hmm. so to, to get through that, like exactly what you said, you have to look at your actions. You have to look at what you actually do because that's going to reveal your, your true values because you're going to lie to yourself. You're going to deceive yourself to some extent. Yeah. And I think that's why like the Oracle of Delphi said, of course, the expression, know, know thyself. And, um, you know, I want to unpack two quick things that you mentioned there, the first being the shadow, and then the latter being the karma, you know, as far as the shadow, I, I love that. And you're right. And what I would say is, I, I wasn't familiar with young when I first recognized that I would do things behaviorally, that didn't align with what I thought mentally I was meaning like I would um, say something horrible to my brother who I love and adore. And I, I would think, oh boy, I'm this great brother to this guy. And then how, but at the same time, how could I say something so selfish to him or act to him in such a selfish manner? But what I would say though, 
is the shadow to me isn't all bad by any means either. There's a process of integration. So if someone is um, training for martial arts, for example, having the integration of that shadow, um, that side of themselves is very important. Now, there's there's a balancing act, though, of course, because it's the marriage of opposites, really. Because if if you just go full bore, um, embracing the shadow side and just letting it take the reins constantly of the ego cockpit, if you will, it's it's you're going to act potentially like a monster all the time. However, there could be occasions potentially where one might need to behave like a monster if it's a life and death situation. Um, and also, I would say, too, channeling that shadow can lead to bouts of being courageous. Like some people, when they hit these areas of just rage, they're absolutely fearless. So you you might very well want that. Like if someone's like a firefighter and they're a hero and they got to do some incredible feat, you know, being able to integrate the shadow is really probably very important, but it's a tightrope walk. And the latter, as far as karma goes too, you know, with all those actions, yeah, karma to me, I think of the expression, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's again, the marriage of opposites. It's this idea of duality or the Tao. Uh, karma is... They're, they're, without even getting into the esoteric interpretation, it is, it is, it is what it is. It does exist, of course. Everything you do is going to have a, a reaction. So, and I guess the, my takeaway from that is though the beauty of it is though you can sit back and analyze yourself, that know yourself, like we talked about, and look at the manifestation of where you're at. Like en masse, are things better for me now now, or before I made some fundamental changes? So karma gives us this chance of self-awareness that I do think is absolutely beautiful. Is my relationship with my wife closer now or you know, is it decaying? Is my employment improving or is it not improving? Or has my values as far as my employment changed? Maybe I've decided I wanna pursue a new career path. Am I actually working towards it or am I not? But the but the idea of karma is beautiful because it is what it is, frankly. So you might as well view it as beautiful because <laughs> uh, it could be negative, I guess, as well, if you're spreading negativity around. But if it is wonderful and you're putting a lot of good out there, um, you're going to be able to sit back and feel the manifestation of it and be able to analyze it. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely... A force of nature it's like the ocean i mean you can surf the waves or you can get pummeled by them and sometimes yeah. you're going to do both and it is what it is um but it's absolutely going to be working constantly and what i would say too yeah just to add on to that is if you have not not everything that happens to you is your fault obviously there's things that happen to you outside of your control yeah. however if you are stuck and you're trying to figure out why things have not changed for a significant amount of time why you're stuck in patterns it's best to just assume tentatively that for now that everything is your fault not not that you have to blame yourself for everything but just to say let's assume it's my fault that way i can take responsibility for it and i can start to look at if it is my fault what could be the cause of xyz and if i can start to reverse engineer that then i can start to work my way out of this now again it's not about blaming yourself for everything especially sometimes you really are the victim Mm -hmm. And you have to pull back a little, a little bit and say, okay, that did happen to me. All I can really take responsibility for is how I reacted to it, how I prepared myself for it, et cetera, et cetera. 
but it's kind of useless to sit there and say, well, this is just how life is. It's mm -hmm. like, well, you can find other people who are doing better than you, who are doing worse than you. There's a reason for that. There's always a reason for it. And if you don't start taking responsibility for what you can, which goes very much back to what most of the philosophers were looking at is like, what is the meaning? How can I improve my life, essentially? And they wrote very long, wordy books to describe these very simple topics because it's, it's it, you can spend a lifetime pursuing it. But that's the core of what it is. And I think that I love what you said about the shadow, too, because that's the you know, the the mercy, severity, juxtaposition, mm -hmm. the the back and forth between those two. But the, the balance between them is is beauty. The balance between understanding that you need a certain amount of severity in order to protect yourself, in order to set those those boundaries, in order to go after what you want, in order to keep things stable. But that will become, you know, corrupt if you go too far the other way. And so you need a certain amount of mercy as well to temper that. Yeah. Well, I, that's amazing. You you um, snuck in the tree of life of Kabbalah there, um, <laughs> but I, I love it, and it's so it's so meaningful. Why abiding by that middle pillar of being able to live really live in balance and harmony? That Egyptian idea of maat. Um, yeah, that's why it's so absolutely vital to be to be overly. Um, I would say empathic or showing too much grace to others leads to people being and this might be a crass expression but like a doormat where mm -hmm. people will abuse that or some people are so giving that they get steamrolled by people who are incredibly selfish and that that's not fair to them and so there needs to be balanced there there's certainly times to show grace but there's times to be assertive as well and yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack from what you said. I, I will say as well, I really do appreciate your other comment because the, the analogy of the ocean is beautiful because there will be, you could live the perfect holy life, but a tsunami of illness might not be your fault or an illness affecting a loved one of yours. You know how life is just a mystery and it can be horrible at times. And my one takeaway that can be easy to say while I'm sitting here healthy right now um, so of course, you know, I'll change in my older videos, I've changed my opinions on things. So I'm saying this from a comfortable, healthy position right now. But I think the most important thing is, to, when you're being highly pragmatic is putting the energy into what you can control in uncontrollable situations as well. And so if there is some horrible situation of a loved one of yours is suffering from some type of illness, for example, being pragmatic about, okay, what treatment options can we do? Or how can we react to this that's going to put you into the best you know, footing or put you into the most healthy state? Um, I do think that's where all of the energy should go and where focus goes, energy is going to flow. And so where you're focusing as far as output, if it's just on the negativity, I feel like it's really dangerous for me and my past to fall into a very negative place. If I'm really like, you know, a rat trying to find myself out of this maze and I'm just on the hunt, I'm so consumed with the journey of getting out of the maze. I'm not like in the, the firefight of realizing I'm in a state of suffering right now, if, if that makes sense. And so um, it's tough though, but I do like what you say. It's it's like, you're not in control of everything. It'd be delusional. It, it's actually very unhealthy to do so. What, what, when people do that, especially um, there's like the devouring um, mother archetype, for example, she has children in an environment that's 
you know, very chaotic. And so some of them to maintain control become these tyrants to their children. And that's that's not a way that is going to lead to your child individuating themselves. And so um, it's even me, frankly, I suffer from this in a sense. I do, I organize my bookshelf if I'm feeling like really anxious, like a psycho, I, I've got things organized by publisher and I'll be like, no, I'm going to organize it by mythology. No, I'm going to organize it by author. No, I'm going to organize it by year. And I just sit there organizing my bookshelf. It's me trying to create some type of order in a life full of disorder. And it's just, I'm aware of it, but it's just these goofy little things that we do. But um, those quirks though, too, um, that we have in ourselves, when I recognize them, especially with others, and being more graceful, I just love it. I think it's what individuates us. I'm not perfect. Those little quirks, like me being a psycho with the organization, I just love it. It's it's part of my quirky self. So you just have to sit there and laugh, like Kierkegaard says, you know. <laughs> and that's the thing, yeah. I mean, like if you're going, like to use the example that you said, if if it's a loved one, for example, who gets sick, and it's like, you know, sometimes healthy people get cancer. Sometimes healthy people get illnesses, and it's like it's really not their fault. And I mean, yeah, it's always, it always makes sense in a grand scheme of things, just like every single wave of the ocean, there was a, so many different forces interacting to have that particular wave happen exactly when it did the bottom of the ocean, the currents, the other waves. And like, it's just a never ending process, but we don't have the ability to see all of that. We only have the ability to understand that. Well, I can try to surf these waves. I can try to ride these waves. I can try to interact with them in a way that makes sense for me. And I can pick up on certain patterns. That's one thing I learned from surfing is that the, the waves come in sets and they're, they're pretty predictable. Um, and it's going to be different every day. It's going to be different based off the tide, but they have a certain basic pattern there. And I think that when you're, when you have somebody else going through something difficult, it can be really tough. And I mean, there's absolutely no getting around the fact that it's going to be painful for you. It's going to be frustrating and scary. But we forget how how much we mirror each other, how much how much we pick up from one another. If you act in a way that is very steadfast, very calm, and you it's coming from your heart, it's coming from an energetic place of like you are doing the inner work to bring yourself to a state of peace as much as possible. That has an effect on people. Like everyone that is around you, like, yes, you can't control the fact that this person is sick, but you can control your internal state and they're going to pick up on that. And they may, it may, you may not walk into a room and like, they just like, oh, everything's fine now, you know, unless you're, you know, if you're Buddha maybe, but like no, most people are not going to be able to get to that level, but you can take control of doing the work that you can, that, that is within your grasp and it will have an impact on people. It's going to have an impact on you and they're going to pick up on it. Yeah. Beautiful. I I couldn't agree more. There's there's words of wisdom to that. And I would just add as well that as far as the work is concerned, when it comes to relationships with others, um, showing grace and goodwill um, to them is incredibly important in that people are going to be in those patterns that you talked about themselves. And a lot of people aren't self-aware of the patterns or the quirks that they have themselves. They haven't in individuated them or integrated them. And so I've noticed as well, it's not that I'm a therapist or anything like that, but it's not my calling to call people out on it. Certainly not. And the other comment that I would just make as well is you said a beautiful gem, which was about us being mirrors. <laughs> 
I certainly am like that with all these books that I read. There, there's a really scary quote by Nietzsche that I'm going to mirror. Which there's a lot of scary about, like, quotes by Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. But this one too is chilling because it's so true for me, which he says, I think it's in Beyond Good and Evil about like, it's he's he he's criticizing academia i think if i'm interpreting it right and he says they're just mirrors they don't have he says essentially they don't have any original thought like they're not contributing mm -hmm. anything original they're just regurgitating themselves yeah and i'm i'm i might be butchering it slightly but that was my takeaway from it at least because i do that if i'm if i'm honest but my point in saying that is when i realized how much i'm mirroring what i'm writing or what i'm writing what i'm reading through my writing as well, but how much I'm mirroring it, it's like, I need to guard the gates. When it comes to people that I let into my life, when it comes to what social media I'm going to consume, when it comes to what uh, media content, what books I'm reading, like it's, it's why certain things could be so toxic that I just cannot let them get through the gate um, because it's going to cause a lot of harm. I'll, I'll say this super as a really, now I'm starting to get into the woo woo, but like one concept too, for, for a sigils, like if for Austin Osmond spare about how sigils work on the subconscious mind, I will say this comment, you know, advertising works like that. You know, the uh, half of our brain is communicating through symbols. And the, when I see a logo, a BMW logo, I instantly know exactly what that means. That's a reference to luxury. It's a fancy vehicle. If I see the McDonald's logo, maybe I feel a pang of hunger in myself. Those, those work. And so if I'm really honest with myself, um, advertising works on me. I could see an ad for a book over and over again, and I'll find myself buying the book if I'm really honest. The reason I'm oh, I, I guard the gates is because I've seen things slip through, certainly through the form of marketing, and that's why it's so important that the people that we let into our lives are going to be edifying. I have there's a, a gentleman who gives consultations at work to people. And um, he said this, and there's a way of interpreting this that might not be apt, but the way I interpret it is, I'll say what he said first. He says that you need to treat everybody like a bank account where you're making more deposits than withdrawals. Like if you're just cashing on people constantly, eventually you're going to have, you're going to run out of checks. You're going to run out of credit. And so people, most people that are good natured are going to just give you some credit. They're going to give you respect. They're going to treat you right, right from the get-go. But if you're constantly taking, 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 that goodwill is going to run dry. And that's why it has to be reciprocated. And so uh, it's not to like say that we need to, you know, monetize and count everything that someone does to us, of course, like that, that's really toxic as well. So I don't mean it in a toxic sense, but anyways. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. I, I completely agree too. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've been hitting a lot lately is that we're all, we really want that human connection. We really want that sense of presence and um stillness with one another and so everybody's always thinking about what they're going to say next everybody's thinking about what they're what what happened to them earlier that day um fixated on their own emotions on what's going on in their head and they're not really listening to the conversation a lot of times and we can sense that because again we pick up on each, on each other constantly and so when you get somebody that is doing what you're saying and becoming aware of your own stuff like your own proclivities towards distraction towards gullibility towards desire towards whatever it is as you start 
as you as you come become aware of it, it freaks you out because you realize that all of a sudden it's like I don't know who I actually am because like this is pulling me this way, this is pulling me this way. This voice in my head is actually just this one fear. This other voice in my head is actually just this desire, and it's like who am I really? It's it's difficult to navigate that, and it's one reason people don't go through it. That and that's the the surface level of the shadow. That's that the lunar energy that's distorting and and hiding everything and pulling you off course. But at the same time as you start to get to the core and you start to kind of push through those shadows, you start to kind of work your way through all the, the illusion of Maya and you get to a place of stillness and you, and, and presence that has a huge impact on people. When you actually listen to them, when you're actually there with them, when you're actually secure and calm in your own approach, that has a tremendous impact on everybody around you. It makes you magnetic. It puts people into you. Like you become like that. I think that's one of the elements of charisma Honestly, it's just that ability to make people feel seen, to feel heard, because it's so rare. Yeah, yeah beautiful. And then it's also more authentic. Mm-hmm. Like when it's engaging and someone's truly listening, I, I, I think too of myself, when I've had moments of frustration in employment, for example, it's normally my biggest frustration in the past has been me feeling not understood. Yeah. And, and, but, but the irony is I need to show up as well to understand others. Like if I'm just sitting there thinking of my response, like while they're talking, for example, I'm not fully engaged with the listening. It's, it's, but it, again, it's a very selfish thing. And I'm certainly not saying I don't do that. I'm, I'm a human being, of course, but um, that self-awareness too, if I could just say, and I'll, I'll say piously um, tongue in cheek, cause I've got so much work to do with it myself, but I do think meditation is the the salve for that. Uh, there's so many types of meditation. I won't even get into all of the techniques because I do so many different ones myself. But um, there is a beautiful saying. It, this was by Crawley. And so, you know, there's a lot of Crawley cooties, as they say. <laughs> but um, Crawley said it's it's like you have to damn the river. Um, because your mind is just constantly racing. It's constantly flowing with thoughts and they're all over the place. There might be a desire, might be a really odd desire, might be all of these different, different things. And so when you damn it though, and then after you damn it, you finally can have focus. And I've noticed with myself when I have spent like an asinine amount of time in meditation or prayer, I certainly feel more quote unquote me And I also have way more energy when I'm in communication with others. I'm way more present. Or if I'm reading, I have way more focus. My my reading settings from meditation pre to post go up exponentially because my focus can be so much better. Because for me, it sounds maybe sounds odd, but it's so much easier for me to read than to meditate. Meditating is so hard. Like sometimes I'll procrastinate because I force myself to do it every day and I'll I'll sit there reading extra long because I'm like, oh God, I'm going to have to do this meditation after. And it's such hard work because my mind races. And, and some of these thoughts that I have, I'm like, oh man, that's a horrible thought. Why, why did you think that? And so, and then I'm in this rabbit trail of pursuing this horrible thought. It's like, no, you have to sit there and damn that river and get a couple minutes of that um, for there to finally be some clarity. Yeah, I agree. And well, to go back to what we had that, to combine what you just said with with Carl Young, which where we were, and to get away from Crawley before I start talking about orgies. Um, <laughs> one of the 
one of the um, meditations that Jung talks about in his Red Book about just following the thoughts down, digging into the unconscious, that one has been incredibly beneficial for me personally. I've had several pretty profound mystical experiences off of that because it's just, I, it, it may not work the same for everybody, but for me, it's like the unconscious is is always throwing up those pictures and those symbols. When you learn to understand that this is its communication, this is not my thought, this is not the thing, this is my brain showing me something that it wants me to see, and then just allowing myself to follow that down, it gets it gets weird. And you've got to understand, like, I'm looking at this as a metaphor, which again, to, to talk about what we did earlier with the, the different holy scriptures, it's like, how much is true literally, how much is true metaphorically? It doesn't matter. Like, it's it, what matters is where it leads you. What it matters is what it gets you to. So if if the uh, thinking of it as a literal thing helps you become a peaceful, good person, by all means. If you say, no, 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 this isn't true at all. It's just a very cleverly concocted story that is leading towards a higher truth. I don't personally care. Like, if that helps you, go for it. I think that that's beautiful. But one of the things that I came upon recently was as I was following that down, I got to this place where I realized that I had not forgiven somebody who had done a couple of things and they, they did, they did do some things that I didn't deserve. Um, and I, I realized that I was holding on to that. And one of the things I've been struggling with totally called me out on this, by the way. And it's funny cause I just did an episode on forgiveness. So I've like, I've been feeling like a hypocrite for the last few days, trying to do this work and struggling with it. Um, so for everybody who heard that, I was like, I can't do this. Don't worry. It's, it's hard. I'm struggling too. <laughs> um, but the most powerful thing, one or one of the most powerful things I think is exactly what you said. And it's learning to peel away your distractions, your shadow. And in doing that, you start to see that shadow in other people, which allows you to realize that a lot of the bad stuff they do to you is their own insecurities. It's their own stuff. It's their own fears, their own desires. And they're aware of what they do and it doesn't excuse somebody hurting you. It doesn't excuse people doing bad things to you, but to see the human in there underneath that, the person that's scared, the person that's confused, the person that is just trying to do the best they can and doesn't know how to do it and probably doesn't realize that they're hurting you sometimes, or at least not the extent that it's happening to get that human connection can really go a long way. It doesn't mean that you become again, too much on the merciful side. Like you still need the severity of to say, okay, boundaries not going to be around this person or no, I'm not gonna let that fly. But to just attack them and to just hold on to that, like it poisons you. It, it, it doesn't do any good for, for anybody to hold on to that stuff. And it's a process to get through it. But yeah, no, that, that, that really called me out. And I, I love it because that's what I'm struggling with right now. And I always try to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack by that. Again, I I totally agree. There's a saying by Young as well that you are what you hate most in others, mm. <laughs> which is Oh, so, I love that. Yeah, and it, it hits like bricks because it's so true for me. Yeah. Um like if I when I notice the behavior of those and I am not saying like my enemies here. I, I don't have enemies, but Anymore. when I, I'm saying this about my loved ones really, if there's yes. some little thing they do that um that ticks me off, if you will, it's normally in spades with me, multiples. So and um, there's probably um, criticism with me with time management. I, I, I'm i known for showing up late for things. And then if someone shows up late, I'm like not very um, empathetic <laughs> sometimes. And it's just this, it's, it's just goofy stuff that, that you have to um, 
be gracious with others. And really also to the point about the communication with Jung, with his um, meditation technique, being gracious with yourself as well. I mm. think that when the subconscious is communicating, it is just like you said, it communicates in symbols and it's, it's, and it's partly to communicating very graciously through those patterns. And I think when you're recognizing your behavioral patterns, that's like step one. And then step two is being able to finally shift into the meaning of those subconscious um, symbols or memories or whatever it might be that just keep rearing their head. Um, I actually do that technique. Um, there's other mystics as well that have have said it um, besides young. Um, but I do that every night before I go to bed, or at least I try. And, um, and it's, it's me just embracing that. And so um, it's, it's interesting, as it can be it changes as well, uh, as far as the the symbolism. And it's also fascinating as well, because like the anima versus animus and all that, mm -hmm. you notice the expressions that Jung used do show up in your dreams. And when I'm meditating in that format, my dreams tend to be much more potent. And also my dream recollection improved quite substantially. I log all my dreams and I don't sit there interpreting them initially right away because sometimes the interpretation is going to come like substantially after the fact. But um, it is bizarre how effective it is. I do think that when Jung was doing it himself, he was like a savant compared to me, though. I don't get the potency of um, a vision like Jung did. Certainly, as you mentioned, the Red Book that well, he's talking about in the Red Book, that's an incredible, it's probably in my top five favorite books of all times. Um, so I'm I'm not going through anything at the level of depth that he was at, of course. Um, but it is very interesting for myself. It's it's really me um, communicating with a, a self. And I will say too, very briefly, as my understanding, you know, the idea for me for my whole younger life was that my ego was myself. Mm -hmm. It was the access, it was the central access. And it was really through reading Young that I realized my ego isn't the access, it's a access. There's mm -hmm. also the self access, it's polarity. Again, it's these two things. And he used the analogy that the Holy Spirit is that conduit between them. He uses the idea of this greater self with God the Father and Christ Jesus being the ego. But they also think about that of when one encounters the divine, it's usually through ego death. Again, very symbolic of Christ. And so um, I don't want to get too in the in the weeds of it, but I will say I, I love what you're recommending there. I think that that's incredibly potent and it works. It, it does work wonders. Yeah, I live off in the weeds. So that's kind of <laughs> definitely the um, the imagery of, of Christ on the cross as a a lot of symbolism, but just from one particular viewpoint to look at it as being willing to sacrifice the human side of yourself so that the soul can be resurrected so yeah. that you can put to death the earthly inclinations you can put to death the ego you can put to death all the 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 son of man quote unquote and it's not it's not a true death it's the death of of the mundane it's the death of the physical but not of the spiritual and the higher for sure um well thank you so much we're we're out of time but i really appreciate you coming out here and sharing your wisdom with us it's been a very interesting conversation and i'm a hundred percent sure that I'm going to be thinking about this for a while. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the invite. 
Absolutely. Reach out to me anytime, man. I'll, I'll have this up in the next week or so. Uh, again, thank you so much. Well, uh, real quick, where can people find you for sure? Um, Zen Mood HQ, and uh, I'm on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, uh, frankly, everything as uh, Zen Mood HQ. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll put a link up there and you guys have a great evening. Thank you, sir. You as well.